Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Romans, chapter 9. And we're going to dig in about verse 6 or so. Inconceivable. That's a word that was used throughout the movie of The Princess Bride. Matter of fact, the Sicilian boss, Vizzini, he used that word a lot. Every time something was going on, he's saying, inconceivable, right? Inigo Montoya, his Spanish cohort who was bent on revenge of the six-fingered man who killed his father, finally says to him, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Well, I think he's right. It's pretty obvious that Vizzini doesn't really know what inconceivable means, yet it suits him. <laughs> he uses it a lot. It's funny how he finds a lot of things in, in the movie and probably in life as inconceivable. But it turns out they're not so inconceivable after all. Unfortunately, he learns that at a pretty priceless lesson uh, when he is there with the dread pirate Roberts and they're having a little battle of wits, and he's poisoned. If nothing else, Vizzini has offered up our pulp culture and our society, by extension of that, just this single word to be used in any inconceivable situation. A lot of things are inconceivable these days, aren't they? We just can't believe that this is happening. In our study of the book of Romans, Paul makes a statement here in Romans chapter 9, in verse 6, that bears some of these inconceivable thoughts. He says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Inconceivable. Yes? No. Paul's going to build upon this specific statement over the next few verses and explain to them why this is not so inconceivable after all. You see, in God's master plan, which he established before the foundation of the world was even laid, the redemptive plan of man would ultimately include sending his son into this world through the descendants of Israel, yet not all Israel descendants would be a part of that plan. So Paul wants his Jewish readers to understand something now. So as he's writing to the church in Rome, they were not all Roman people. There were some who were Jews there. And in this passage here in Romans 9 and, and through 11, he's really going to key into his brethren, the Jews, in this dialogue. And so he wants them to understand that salvation is really a divine experience, that it is it always begins and ends with God. It has nothing to do realistically with what they want. So Paul seeks to explain the matter of God's sovereign and His divine sovereignty regarding salvation. And he wants us to know beyond a shadow of all doubts that God is in absolute control. He's not lost it. He's in full control of the salvation of men's souls. So this morning, I want us to consider just a little bit some of the particular aspects of what he's going to lay out for us and his dealings as they're revealed here in Romans chapter 9 and what God's plan for salvation of his people is. So let's begin with a word about precepts. All right. 
Romans 9, verse 6, the very first part of that verse says, But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. They begin to think that maybe God has made promises and He's not kept His promises and He has failed in all this. Possibly it's because of some of the implications that arise after what He's just written in the first five verses there. And in spite of this impressive list of covenant blessings that he has bestowed upon the people of Israel, which you read there in verses 4 and 5, the majority of Israel, they are apparently accursed and cut off from God. That's why Paul had said, I wish that I could take their place and, and be accursed of God. So the question then comes down to this. Has something gone wrong with God's plan? Has he failed to keep his promise to his people of Israel? Paul's readers, they must not draw the wrong assumptions from his grief concerning Israel's rejection of Messiah. All right? While he was expressing his sorrow for what was taking place and his actions of his Jewish kinsmen, that grief and that sorrow and the tears that were welling up with him should never be interpreted to imply that Paul thought God was breaking his promises and that they had failed to come true. He immediately implies here, and he rejects that thought. He's emphatic in this statement that he believes that God has not failed, that his words are true, he has kept his promises no matter what they may think. All right? So the word failed, which is used here in verse 6, can literally be taken and translated to fall from or to fall off of. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 4, Paul is going to write to the churches there in Galatia. He's going to say, you are separate from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, the same word that is used there. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, Peter is going to use that same word when he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. That word ekpipto that is used in these three verses, metaphorically, it means to fall from or to lose something. And in Galatians and in Peter, it's talking about falling away from your relationship with Christ or the grace that He has offered. But that's not what he's talking about here in this one. He's using it as more of a general meaning of fall or come to nothing or end and, or be annulled. He uses it the same way when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8, when he says, love never fails, love never ends. It doesn't stop. All right? Paul has declared that God's word does not fail, it does not fall away, it does not end. And Peter will go even further to say in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 through 25, he'll say that since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The flower withers and the flower the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And then he says, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. This word of God does not fall or fail or end. It is living and abiding, and it goes on. And so his promises are true. Now in our text here in Romans chapter 9, 
God's word means something more specific, though. It refers specifically to his words of promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to, to the people of Israel, all right? And his promises, especially to the Old Testament people of Israel. But these promises, these words that he's going to keep, they're not going to fail. Though they are perceiving something is amiss here, because the church has all of a sudden showed up on the scene. Now, in Paul's day, there were only a, a small number of Jews who acknowledged that Jesus was Messiah. Now, that has grown through the years, but predominantly at this point when he's writing this letter, the Jews are rejecting Jesus. They don't want to have anything to do with him. And every time Paul goes into a community, he begins to, to share the gospel message with them. They run him out of the city. They don't want to do that. But a lot of times there are a few that will embrace Jesus. Paul describes a people who, though they are distant relatives or descendants of Israel, they are not among the people who embrace this promise that God has made forth in his plan. So, while some in national Israel have rejected Jesus as Messiah, there are others who embrace him. And that's how Israel has been working since the very beginning. Even in the Old Testament, some embraced God and they followed him while others rejected and did their own thing. So that brings me to our next discussion. A word about, if I turn the right page, about position. Let's look at verses 6 through 10. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah has conceived children by one man, our father Isaac. All right. Paul is going to unveil a simple yet a very profound um, principle of God here. All Jews could claim biological relationship and a descendancy from Abraham and from Isaac, all right? But not all Jews could claim an association with God's promise of salvation and his eternal plan. See, many Jews depended on their connection with Abraham. They thought, just because I am a descendant of Abraham, I'm in good standing with God, and I get to go to heaven. That's simply not the truth is what Paul is going to bring to them. Paul knew that that would never prove worthy in God's plan because his plan is you have to come to heaven through his son, Jesus. They may have rejected the truths about Scripture, but they couldn't escape the means of salvation, which is only through Christ. The Jews in Paul's day may have rejected the gospel message, but they can't escape it. They have to go through it in order to get into heaven. And many have been Jews by biological birth, but that can never translate into becoming the Israel that Paul wants to speak about. So the key to this puzzle is this. There are two Israels. How so? 
This is what he's going to bring to their attention. All right? So let's go back to Romans chapter six, chapter 9, verse 6. He says, Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. I mean, that statement right there clearly identifies that just because you are Jewish doesn't mean you're a part of the Israel that he's speaking about. All right? He wants us to understand that there's the existence of two separate groups of people of Israel. There is ethnic Israel, and there is spiritual Israel. This is very key to how we understand the rest of Romans 9, 10, and 11. All right? Now, a person may carry all the genetic markers that enable them to be a true descendant of, of Abraham through Isaac and through Jacob. But the other Israel is composed of people who are Jews as well, but they also share Abraham's faith in his plan for salvation. These two Israels are not distinctly two separate groups. They actually, if you are one who believes in the plan of salvation with the faith that Abraham had, you actually are a part of both groups of this Israel. You are biologically Israel, but then you are also spiritually Israel. It's important to understand that this passage here is not talking about everybody. He's just talking specifically about the Jews and in their relationship with God, all right? And therefore, he wants them to understand that there is a spiritual Israel that is included in this. Now, there are other passages in the Scripture that will talk about how we, as Gentiles, have been incorporated into that spiritual Israel, but he's not dealing with that in this part, all right? He's just talking about the people who descended from Abraham. A key word in this statement is this word, for or sometimes it may be translated because. It indicates that the first part of verse 6 explains the second part of verse 6. So the latter is the reason why the former is true. God's promises concerning Israel have not failed because there really are two Israels. In His promises, God made a covenant with the patriarchs regarding a messianic purpose for the nation collectively, which includes the accompanying privileges that Paul just spoke about in verses 4 and 5. So he's going to say, I'm going to bless you because through you is going to come someone who's going to bless the entire world. All right. So he wants them to know that his plan is to bless the entire world, but he's going to use them as the conduit for them. God's promises to them did not include the forgiveness of their sins. You're not going to find that anywhere in Scripture. Right? It doesn't say, because you're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you get to come to heaven. He says, because you're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through you is going to come the one who will eventually be able to bring us to heaven. All right? and that promise is promised only to the spiritual Israel who will get to go to heaven. Therefore, God's promise, he says, has not failed. He's fulfilling it. The existence of the people of Israel was by God's design from the very beginning. Through His sovereign, unconditional choice, God selected Abraham and his descendants to be the lineage in which Jesus eventually would be born. That's the conversation that Paul is having with him right here. All right, He says, Israel, you're special. Why? Not because you've done anything, but because I've chose you 
And through you will eventually come Messiah, will come Jesus. We consider that everything is here, that Israel, by God's design, that Abraham was selected, and, 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 and the association was, was extremely precious to every Jew. They still love to be recognized as a, a descendant of Abraham. But here's the problem. He was the father of their nation, and they all traced their lineage back to him, but that alone isn't enough to bring them their salvation. All right? You see, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Some of you remember that song, right? But we're not going to go into it. God's promise would only be able to come through one of his progenies. And Abraham had a lot of children. We don't often think about that because Scripture often refers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But before Abraham had Isaac, he had a son through a handmaiden by the name of Hagar, his name is Ishmael. And after Hagar was sent away with Ishmael to the desert to wander, and Sarah, his second wife, she also has a son, and that his name is Isaac. When Sarah dies, eventually Abraham has another wife, Keturah, and she has six boys as well. She has right here Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, uh, Ishbak, and Shua. We don't often talk about these guys, do we? We like to talk about Isaac. But he had many children, but not all those children are Israel. Though they are all descendants of Israel, and a lot of them can trace their lineage back through him. I mean, those were all of Abraham's sons, and yet they were not counted as his children of the promise. Even though Abraham... The promise was made to him that through his descendants, not all your descendants, Abraham, but he's going to specify which ones. All right? To be a physical descendant of Abraham was not enough. One must be chosen by God to be in line with the promise. And this is what Paul is trying to get across here to them. And that promise would only come through Isaac and not his seven other brothers. So, we go back to Genesis chapter 18, verse 10, and we find that God says this to Abraham. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. He's the one that I'm going to fulfill my promise to you with. So the nation of Israel came through Isaac along with the promise. And in order to be an Israelite, you had to come through the lineage of Isaac. These facts cannot be disputed. And the Jews would say, here, here, we agree. All right? It was in accordance with God's sovereign plan all along for Israel. But as we take a closer look at this promise, we discover that God's plan was even more specific than just coming through Isaac. Not only would His chosen people come from the children of Isaac, but God would now narrow it down even further to that of Isaac's son, Jacob. The interesting thing that Paul now brings up in this verse 10 is that while some may not have acknowledged Ishmael's sonship of Abraham because his mother really was not his wife but she was a handmaid, a servant, Rebekah is the only wife of Isaac and therefore her child would be the child of promise. But God does something different here that causes the readers to kind of say, oh, hold on a second, what? Yeah. So they look at God's sovereign choice and His election in His promise, 
because of what he's going to introduce here now with Rebecca. God goes against the cultural protocols in this promise at this birth. You see, Jacob, he's a twin. He was conceived at the same time as his brother Esau by his father Jacob, or by his, by his, by his father Isaac, and Rebekah. And according to cultural expectations, the firstborn son should be the one that receives the blessings and would be the one that would inherit the promise. All right? Well, that's not Jacob. That's Esau. Esau was born first. And the Jews would recognize that fact. But the fact is that God chose Jacob for this role shows unequivocally that, that God's election to those that he wants to use to serve his purposes does not based upon any kind of human condition or allowances in order for them to receive this blessing. Paul unveils more specifically God's purpose in his selection of Jacob, which brings me to another discussion. We need to have a word about performance. Verse 11, Paul says, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. A verse tells us that God made a choice between Jacob and Esau even before either one of the boys had been born. It was not based upon who they or what they have done in life. All right? Here we learn the truth that it's not about works. In other words, good deeds to God basically mean nothing at all. All of the works that men can do will never buy them their salvation and a place in heaven. Salvation comes not by works, but by faith in the grace of God. Now, anyone might want to quibble a little bit here about the choice of Isaac over Ishmael. And they would say, well, maybe Ishmael did some things that were bad, and therefore God chose Isaac. But you can't have a disagreement about the good and the bad when it comes to Jacob and Esau, because before the boys were even born, God had made his decision who it was going to be that would receive the blessing. All right? It wasn't about what they had done. The reason for the choice must lie then within the will of God rather than in the behavior of man. We might as well be reminded this morning that our good works and our self-righteousness as well will have no result for our salvation based upon how good we are. It's based upon our faith in God and keeping His promises to us. Now, this is made abundantly clear when we consider that the best that any man can produce is really worthless in the sight of God. That's why Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 64, 4, 6, that we have all become like one who is unclean. And then he says, all of our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. Everything that we think is really good about us is dirty. It's bad. So he, he, says, he says, we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Paul again nails us down in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 9, which Carrie brought forth a little bit of that earlier, that it's not by our works that we're saved, but it's by faith and it's by the grace of God and His goodness. All right? God does everything in our salvation. We have no part of doing anything in it. Paul's point here is that, that just by being a part of a nation of Israel doesn't mean that his Jewish brothers are saved. In other words, it's not about family. 
Just because a person was a descendant of Abraham didn't make that he was the person right with God. Because Abraham had a lot of kids, and they weren't all a part of this promise. I think that same truth applies to you and me today, not just to the Jewish race. There is no other way to heaven except through the salvation that is offered by Jesus Christ. Now, you may have been born into a heritage of people who go to church, and you've been a part of this church for the fifth generation. That doesn't mean you're going to heaven just because you're part of that family and you go to this church. All right? It's not based upon your connection with the outward appearance of it. By all outward appearances, you might belong to the church, but you've never really been born into the family of God, and you've never really put your faith in Jesus and trusted in Him for your salvation. You simply cannot get into heaven riding on someone else's coattails. You have to put your faith in Him. And that's what Paul is telling the Jews. You're not going to heaven simply because you're associated with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You've got to accept the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And apart from that, you're lost like all the other Gentiles. See, these truths are inescapable. Regardless of the perceptions or the practices of men, you must be born again by faith or you will not be saved. You simply have to put your faith in Jesus. So that brings us to our final discussion here. We need to have a word about God's purpose. All right? So verse 11 through 13. He says, Though they were not yet born, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. The real underlying reason for God's action in choosing Jacob over Esau is stated right here. It's all because that's what God wanted. That's simple. That's, I mean, that's it. It's not based upon Esau or Jacob. It's based upon God wanted it. This was his purpose. It was his plan. Purpose is also explained to us in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, when he says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called, what? According to his purpose. His plan, God's plan, it established before the foundation of the world was included in his choice of which family Jesus would ultimately enter the world through, and he had to narrow it down to the family and the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In our passage here, Paul is explaining why God's choice of Jacob, and thus his choice of the nation of Israel, was unconditional. It had nothing to do with them. It was all about him. All right? So he stated his purpose according to election that it might not fail. So what was God's purpose then in choosing one twin over the other? Well, it was the same purpose he had for choosing Abraham in the first place. 
and then Isaac. It was the purpose that was expressed when God first made his covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when he said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be, shall be blessed. The redemptive purpose was too important to be allowed to depend on the, the deviations of our own human behavior. He couldn't make it based upon who are the good guys that I want to bring my son into the world through. It was based not upon whether Isaac was good and, 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 Esau, and, and, and Ishmael was bad. It wasn't based upon whether Jacob was good and Esau was bad. It's based upon the fact that beyond any human involvement in this, God was bringing Jesus into the world through that family. So God made it very clear from the very beginning that he was going to accomplish his purpose through this particular family, regardless of their individual decisions within that family and the direction of their personal righteousness. He showed this by the way that he chose Jacob over Esau to accomplish his purpose. Now, what's at stake here is God's faithfulness. That's why Paul is answering this question, has God's word failed? Has his promises been, been worth nothing to us? All right, and his dealing with the Jews, I mean, he could shower them with covenant blessings as he did, and, and it's displayed earlier on in this passage of Scripture in verse 4 and 5, and yet allow them to be lost in their salvation at the same time. They were special, but they were lost. The answer is that the covenant doesn't include a promise for individual salvation or even national salvation for that matter. The covenant was a promise to bring salvation to all the world, to all families, to all people, to every individual that might follow Christ. It wasn't about the Jews being special. From the beginning, God determined what He was going to do. And regardless of whether any individual Jews were saved, He was still going to go through them. Just as God's purpose and election does not depend on the spiritual status of the twin that he chose from Rebekah's womb because he chose him before he was even born, it doesn't depend upon the salvation status of the Jews in Paul's day. They're not going to heaven simply because they're Jewish. And you see, here's the big struggle that he's having to deal with as he's taking the gospel message out into the world. There is a new way to heaven. No, it's actually the old way to heaven. You just are thinking of it as a new way, he's telling the Jewish brothers. The old way has always stayed the same. God's promise has always been to bless everybody through his son, Messiah. And he just allowed him to be born in your family and in your heritage. So God unconditionally chooses Jacob. And it wasn't based upon anything that Jacob or Esau had done, taking into account their superior qualifications or their character flaws. It was simply God's sovereign decision to choose whom He wanted to use in order to bring Jesus into the world. Rebecca was informed by God that the older would serve the younger even before they were born. And according to the custom of that day, because Esau left the womb first, he is the firstborn, and he then should be the greater of those two. 
and receive a greater honor and a greater position of property and be the one to receive the blessings that would pass on from family to family. And yet God says, that's not how I'm doing it. I'm choosing the second one, Jacob, and he's going to be the one that's going to receive my blessing. And in saying this, God was informing Rebecca that she had two nations in mind, not just two boys. So let's go back to Genesis and really look at how God said this. All right? Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, The Lord said to her, Rebekah, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Did you catch that? God's not basing this upon the individual person. He's saying there are going to be two nations that are coming out of you. The nation of Israel and the nation of Edom. But I'm going to choose the nation of Israel, and through him is going to come this promise and this blessing. And the other is going to be, be one who will eventually serve them. From Jacob, of course, came Israel, and from Esau come the Edomites. And the Israelites, therefore, were to be the privileged people and not the Edomites. So now Paul is bringing reinforcements to back this up. And so he, he asked the, the prophet Malachi to share some news as well. And so Malachi chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, Malachi says this. This is the Lord speaking. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, well, how have you loved us? Now listen how he responds to Israel. He says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob. Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. So the context in this passage of Scripture in Malachi indicates that there are these two nations rather than their individual founders, Jacob and Esau, that are in view. And he, we have to understand what he means when he says, I have loved Israel and I have hated Esau. Loving is God's attitude of choosing And so he chose Jacob. Hating is God's attitude of rejecting. And he rejected Esau. So was Israel elected to eternal salvation and the Edomites were rejected and cast to hell? No. Israel was elected by God for an historical function. That at some point in history, Jesus, Messiah, the Christ, would come through them. All right? It was all a part of God's redemptive scheme, and they might be the blessing to all people. And this election to service was not an election to salvation. Whether or not Jacob is saved, that depends on Jacob. Whether or not Esau is condemned to hell, that depends on Esau. But whether or not Messiah comes through Jacob or Esau, that depended on It's his choice. Paul's argument up to this point is that one of the very few Jews would find fault. The Arabs, all right, we're going to talk in our world and our culture today, the Arabs in our world, those are descendants of Ishmael. And, and they are flesh and blood descendants of Abraham. But the Jews would never dream of saying that Arabs are included in the seed of Abraham's promise. Right? They're not going to do that. 
The Edomites, they were descendants of Esau, and Esau was a true son of Isaac and the firstborn son of Isaac by the same woman conceived at the same time, and yet, though he was the brother of Jacob, the Jews will not say that Esau and the Edomites are included in the promised seed of Abraham. They could hardly disagree with Paul's emphasis on this, that God has been making choices throughout all of history and selecting this one and bypassing that one without being unfaithful to his promise about the seed that he made. He's just narrowing it down. And he's narrowed it down even further now to Jesus. And the only way you get to heaven is by being a part of his family. Well, how do we do By faith, through the grace of God. So let's wrap this up. I'm convinced that Paul is revealing a common theological truth that is illustrated here by the lives of, of those who deny the Lord's plan and purposes, and they seek to find some way to gain heaven by their own righteousness. You can't do it. You've got to have Jesus. Many of the Jews although they are direct descendants of Jacob, they're behaving like their distant cousins, the Edomites. And they've refused to embrace Christ as their Savior, and they continue to practice their sacrificial righteousness, hoping that that's going to be enough and that they'll be accepted by God into heaven. However, God loves those who submit to His plans, not their own. When we submit to his purpose for salvation, and he's going to reject any other alternative action thereby. The simple truth is this that the promise of God has not changed, and it never will. The names continue to change, and the various paths continue to appear, but there's only one path that leads to salvation and eternal life, and that is through Jesus. Many people are very sincere in their religious practices and their worship. But they're sincerely wrong if they don't worship Jesus. And that's where the Jews were having this problem. They were not going to put Jesus in a position of being Messiah, and they weren't going to worship Him. There'll be many in hell who are very sincere, but they're sincerely wrong when it comes to their salvation. Jesus is the only means of salvation, and apart from Him, there is no hope of acceptance by God or reconciliation with Him because of our sin. Now, I, I know many may regard that point of view as hard or harsh, but it still remains true. The only way to heaven is through Jesus. You can't get there any other way. Even if you're Jewish, if you reject Jesus, you have no salvation. They have to get there the same way we do. And that's what Paul is trying to convince them. You see, God has set the bounds for salvation and acceptance to Him. And we have no right and we have no authority to challenge Him or to change what His sovereign degree has been. Good works and good intentions will never translate into salvation. God loves those who embrace His Son by faith and He rejects those who reject and deny Jesus as Lord. Simple. I admit this passage of Scripture is, is a difficult passage. 
These verses were given for our benefit, even though he's speaking specifically to the Jews and how God is dealing with Israel. But the common principles that apply to us as well. Works of flesh and human merit will never obtain. Being born into a particular family or being accepted as a member of a local church will never reconcile us to God because of our sin. It's not because you walk through these doors that you get to go to heaven. It's about the heart relationship you have with Jesus. And that's what it falls down upon. If you've never received Christ by faith, resting solely in His promise that He will fulfill all righteousness in you by putting your faith and your trust in His Son, Jesus, by the the finished work that He did upon the cross and out of the tomb, then you remain in sin. So, why not answer His call today? He wants you to have a relationship with Him that includes And He says, come to me. Put your faith in me. That you need to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Repent of your sins. Be baptized into His name. Receive the indwelling Holy Spirit of God that will continue to guide you and guard you and save you for that day. If you've never made the choice to accept the gift that He's offering you, let's do that. All right. Talk with me. Talk with Alan or Sean or anybody and say, I need to get my life right with God. And let's move forward. Because just by being a part of something doesn't cut it. It's got to be your relationship with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for Jesus. We know that the relationship you've called us into with Him, it may not be easy. Because you call us to a higher standard of living. You call us to, to turn away from the world and its enticements, the sin that so easily entangles us in life. And Father, you've called us to accept grace as a free gift, not based on anything that we do or we earn or we can accomplish on our own merit. But Father, it's by your choice. And you've chosen to give us each that opportunity. And we're grateful. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.